Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to our second podcast in our four-part series on understanding the impact of changes to workplace laws. My name is Lucy Shanahan and I'm a partner at Kingston Reed. And today, Michael Mead joins me, who is also a partner with Kingston Reed. And we, Michael, are talking about bargaining disputes. That's right. Good to join you, Lucy. So, Michael, I know you and I both advise quite a lot of clients when developing strategies for bargaining. And one thing that I always am asked by clients is about the impact of protected industrial action. It's always a focus when you're strategizing on how to address bargaining and what to do and whether industrial action will be taken, what the what it might look like, what the response will be, how to manage bargaining disputes. And there certainly have been some changes with the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill, which has included amendments to protected industrial action and also changes to the way that the Fair Work Commission can actually deal with disputes, so the intractable bargaining disputes. Um, the changes start in on the 6th of June 2023. And so we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about what those changes are and what the impact might be for you, the listener. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right, Lisa. I think there's so much change embedded in that uh, that legislation. As as you've said, today we're going to talk about the protected industrial action changes and the changes in and around bargaining disputes. Um, obviously, protected industrial action is part of the uh, suite of tools that employees and an employer have to create leverage in the in the bargaining context. But you know, in terms of you know, letting the listeners know the changes <laughs> to protected industrial action, what do they look like, Lucy? Well, I think one, there's a couple of quite big changes to protected industrial action. I think one of the major changes is the requirement now within the protected action ballot period for bargaining representatives, so that's both the employee representative and the employer, to participate in um, a compulsory conference with the Fair Work Commission. And the idea behind that, the introduction of that compulsory conference, is um, to bring the parties together, I think, to try and um, limit the issues in dispute and give the parties an opportunity to deal with a bargaining dispute rather than actually having to go to industrial action. So I think that's one of the really big changes and a change that uh, parties will have to really think about carefully. It has a big impact. If you don't participate in that conference, then any industrial action you take is not going to be protected. So that's a pretty significant impact if you don't participate in, in that conference itself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So there's obviously a hard edge to it from the perspective of are you actually engaging in protected industrial action, which I think, you know, obviously needs to be considered. One of the other things that occurs to me, Lucy, is also just how employers might be resourced to participate in that, those processes. So, you know, they, they seem very similar to the Section 240 for those, not, not that I want to spend time quoting sections of the Act to our <laughs> listeners, but, you know, there, there are current provisions pre the amendments that dealt with managing bargaining disputes, but they weren't universally used by employers. No, that's right. Lots of employers instead chose just to try and hammer it out it out at the at the workplace level but now as you've said if there's going to be protected industrial action and even if the employers are being dragged along through that process at the initiation of employees their bargaining representatives the union they're going to find themselves sitting in the fair work commission with a tribunal member and they'll need to be able to present a concise and and i'd imagine well-reasoned articulation of where they sit in relation to their bargaining claims yeah why they sit there yeah um and and working through that process so i think it's a skill set that needs to be considered as well it is it absolutely is it gives employers though a really good opportunity to 
go in with a plan. And so in addition to the skill set of actually being able to go in and effectively use the skills of, of the member who's listening, you know, who's assisting you and supporting you through that process, I think employers also need to be thinking about the potential of that conference far in advance of a protected action ballot application even being made. Because if you have records of the offers that you've made, the steps that you've taken, any changes that you've made, you can, you'll can you have all of that information to provide a, and present a really strong story or case as part of that conference process. So really try and get the member on board to try and you know minimise the, the issues in dispute. So it does, it does take planning. The other thing I would say is that I would imagine that lawyers are going to have to seek leave to appear. So employ, employers should not just assume that they're necessarily going to have the support of a legal advisor unless it's an employed legal advisor, obviously. So people will actually need to have those skills to be able to participate in those processes uh, without necessarily the assistance of a, of a lawyer. Yeah, planning is such a, a good point. I think it's a common conversation that I know we're having with lots of our clients about planning for bargaining and planning for what this new world looks like and relying on the the old playbook or the old strategies as just the default muscle memory to how you're going to go into your next bargaining yeah. is really potentially fraught. So I think taking the time over this Christmas period and, and into January where hopefully things are a little bit quieter um, and if you're about to face into bargaining over the course of the next six, six to 12 months, sitting down and really starting to think about, well, um, what skills do we have? What skills do we need? What's our strategy holistically to try to manage some of these issues is going to be really, really important. Absolutely. And one of the other things that's got a lot of media attention, a lot of talking heads talking, is multi-employer bargaining. And talk to me about the availability or otherwise of protected industrial action in that context. Yeah, so there is now, in a multi-employer bargaining situation, there is now the opportunity for protected industrial action to be taken, not in respect of cooperative agreements, which is where a number of employers agree to bargain. So in that situation, there is no protected industrial action available. So that might be a reason that you might agree to it, depending on your circumstances. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, the, the Act now does provide for protected industrial action to be taken where a number of employers are bargaining in a multi, for a multi-employer agreement. Interestingly, the Act specifies that if an application is made for a protected action ballot, each application is assessed on an employer by employer basis and the votes are counted by an employer by employer basis. So you're not, there is actually capacity for the individual circumstances of the employer bargaining in a multi sort of arrangement to be considered, which it'll be interesting to see how that works in, in sort of real life where you have a number of parties negotiating for an agreement to cover all of them, but one party is potentially able to adjust or change the the outcome of the parbo then, or the application compared to another party as well. Yeah, look, one of the things that strikes me about that from a practical perspective is even if you might find yourself as an employer unwillingly kind of uh, roped into this multi-employer paradigm, it still doesn't mean that the effectiveness of the relationships you have with your workforce, Mm -hmm. the effectiveness of your communication through the course of bargaining might not be very relevant considerations when you're facing into the prospects of protected industrial action Mm. and whether your employees decide to vote up the parbo as opposed to those of, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Smith down the road at you know, ABC Constructions Proprietary Limited who might have a poorer relationship with their workforce and then even though you're all rolled up in the same deal, they might take protected industrial action and but your, your employees, employees might. That's exactly right. I think that's a really important point, Michael, is that you can't – employers 
cannot forget how important the relationship that they have with their own employees is, particularly in this bargaining process, and that communication part is absolutely essential, particularly when you're finding yourself going down the road of protected industrial action. Um, and, and I think we have to remember that even though they're is now this step for a conference, for example, there is still the risk of a protected industrial action. So you still need to plan for it when you're, you're considering you know, your, your, your bargaining process. How about notice? So obviously the Act does provide for a minimum period of notice uh, before protected industrial action can be, can be taken. Does it look any different now with the uh, multi-employer bargaining and the ability to take uh, multi-employer yeah, protected action? Yeah, it does. Action? 120 hours of notice. Ooh, one carry the one five five working days <laughs> yes i think so this is one employment law so i don't have to do maths yes but 120 hours of notice is required before protected industrial action is taken so that's also an increased period because in the past we've had a much shorter period as well um, and there's still capacity for an application to be made for an extended notice period so there might be some industries where an extended notice period can be justified particularly where a number of employers are going out yeah, and that's the exceptional circumstances, that's, considerations that get you to yeah. seven working days that's as, right. as, a, as an outer limit. Yep. That's right. So from your perspective, what does all this mean for, for our clients listening, for employers that are you know, thinking about what the 2023 bargaining system looks like for them? I think employers have to, as you said earlier, spend the time planning. If, if you know that you're going to be bargaining in the, in the latter half of next year, because these changes um, commence on the 6th of June 2023, then you need to actually start thinking now about what the various processes are going to be that you have to deal with. Start thinking now about what, how you might manage the conference, making sure that the people who are involved in your negotiations have the skills to do so. And if you find yourselves embroiled or involved or bought into sort of a multi-employer bargaining situation if, if there's a prospect for that then thinking about the way that you're going to get there because if if you do a cooperative workplace agreement then you're not going to have to worry about this at all so it's, it's really starting to think now about what how your future might look and, and the various ways to get there because that will have an impact upon upon the bargaining upon the industrial action in the bargaining it's one of those interesting things. I've heard a number of different commentators talk about you know, whether, in fact, with this new stream of multi-employer bargaining, we're going to see you know, a raft of you know, strikes and you know, industry-wide mm. stoppages. I think there's, that's obviously a potential risk, given the fact that these multi-employer arrangements now do have access to protected industrial mm. action. Um, but one of the things that occurs to me, and it probably segues nicely into the bargaining disputes conversation more broadly, is that... Under the, under the changes that have been introduced, creating industrial leverage through protected industrial action is not the only game in town in order to get a deal. I think that's right. I think, I think particularly, you know, the intractable bargaining disputes, you know, stream now does actually mean that there is a requirement to look more broadly than, than just the protected industrial action. Yeah, so intractable bargaining disputes, a lot of words, but effectively... <laughs> What that's all about is the ability to arbitrate enterprise agreement in inverted commas yeah. outcomes. So in essence, what, what it does, and um, those familiar with the current legislation would be aware that there are only very limited avenues with which enterprise agreement negotiations can be resolved through arbitration. There's the ability for you know, an, em an employer and a bargaining representative to agree that they want to uh, arbitrate the dispute. There was the ability if a you know, party breached a good faith bargaining order 
to seek, seek a serious breach declaration is what they were called and arbitrate the dispute, although I can't recall ever seeing an application of that nature, nor could I recall ever seeing an um, agreement between to, an to arbitrate and, it, yeah. and, and a bargaining agreement to arbitrate it. So really the only area in which the, you were getting those arbitrated outcomes was in the area of in response to industrial action-related declarations yep. where industrial action was effectively um, terminated and that then opened up the ability for arbitration. And to get to that point, life had to be pretty bad. Like Absolutely. There, there, you know, there, there were pretty, it's a pretty high bar or was a pretty high bar to get over to convince the Commission that the industrial action needed to be terminated. So the, everyone was pretty well entrenched by the time you got to that position. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what has changed now is that well, when I say what has changed now, from June uh, next year, because there is a six-month runway yep. to, to these provisions, that effectively, if the parties are involved in intractable bargaining, and it has you know, a series of considerations that I'll get to in a moment, but if they're involved in intractable bargaining, there is the ability for a bargaining representative to effectively approach the Commission and say, we can't come to a deal mm. as a result of sitting in a room and trying to knock our heads together. We would like you to now arbitrate the outstanding issues between us. So effectively, you've got the Fair Work Commissioning acting as a third party, arbitrating the bargaining dispute, even if the party that didn't initiate the application is violently opposed to the idea of it being arbitrated. Yep. I guess in terms of the considerations, because I think it's important to just touch on these and Lucy interested in your views about some of this as well. So obviously, it needs to be initiated by a bargaining representative. There needs to have been a 240 mediation or conciliation process that the parties had participated in. So fairly similar to the concepts to access protected industrial action, that same concept sits there in and around the intractable bargaining declaration. The Commission needs to effectively determine that there are no reasonable prospects of an agreement being reached if it doesn't make a, a declaration, doesn't make an arbitrated... Which is uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because how is the Commission going to satisfy itself? Well, absolutely. I think you know that will come down to uh, lots of things. No, no, no doubt the evidence that the parties lead, but also the postures that are taken yeah. in in bargaining. And I think um, it does lend itself to this idea that parties' respective leverage in the negotiations will fundamentally change and has fundamentally changed as a result of, of these provisions. The position that the parties take to any Section 240 application is going to be incredibly important because if you're ultimate aim is to get to an intractable bargaining outcome, then you're going to use your 240 application to show that there's no prospect of, of agreement. So you, you need to be even more prepared than you might ordinarily be, <laughs> not suggesting you wouldn't prepare now for a Section 240, but th- there is going to have to be greater thought put into how you approach that Section 240 application to get you to where you know you can convince the member that there is no prospect of agreement. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then the two other considerations that I think are quite important to, to um, highlight are that you know the commission still needs to be satisfied that it's reasonable yep. to make effectively the declaration, and then also that the minimum bargaining period has ended. And the minimum bargaining period is a uh, a new defined term in relation to these provisions. Effectively, it's the latter of a nine month period that commences either when bargaining commences and then continues for a period of nine months or nine months from the nominal expiry date of, the, of an existing enterprise agreement. Does that start from now? If it, someone's bargaining now, does their nine-month period start? It absolutely does. So right. I think the, the clock is running yep. um, if you're in bargaining 
um, to be thinking about the, these provisions and how they might they might operate, even though the ability to seek the relevant declaration and ultimate final determination from the from the commission could not occur until June 2023. Now. Let's assume that you get to that point in time and you know, you're in a situation where a declaration in relation to intractable bargaining has been made. The Commission can order a further period of negotiation to occur, so a post-declaration period of bargaining, before it then steps in and starts to you know, tell the parties With, yeah. what terms to and conditions are going to and apply. And that, that's similar to the process that applied with workplace determinations. There was mm. a, a period that the parties had to try and narrow the items in dispute so that you could the commission was only determining the really big issue or the really difficult issues to determine yeah but i think you know as you've said lucy the 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 issue is that who can access it and in what circumstances theoretically it doesn't need to be really really bad before um, you get to the point that you're arbitrating an enterprise agreement Mm. negotiation and indeed it may be a deliberate tactic by bargaining representatives who are trying to get a better deal. If you're a union or employees that don't have you know, a significant weight of numbers, mm-hmm. uh, you might think that, well, we're never going to be able to get uh, the employer to agree to put to a vote a document that we're happy with uh, yeah. and that meets our interests. So maybe we'll sit on our hands and try and get to an arbitrated outcome. But so too for an employer, they might form the view that, well, we need root and branch change in our terms and conditions. Yeah. So if we don't think we can get a majority of employees to vote that thing up, then perhaps part of, part of their strategy might be, well, let's play for time, let's try and get to get, yeah. um, get through that minimum bargaining period, and then there are other options that are open to us. One of the things that I think is really important also to call out in terms of um, the factors that the Commission needs to take into account in uh, deciding how to make a uh, intractable bargaining determination was an amendment that was dropped in, you know, basically at the 11th hour to the bill, and that was that uh, in relation to one of the considerations, where it deals with current terms and conditions uh, or a variation of current terms and conditions, effectively the significance to employers and employees of those existing terms and conditions that might operate immediately prior to any determination by the Fair Work Commission needs to be taken into account. So effectively the Commission is being directed to factor in if there's going to be root and branch change Change, to existing conditions, what the significance of those conditions are to the relevant stakeholders that might be standing to lose those terms and conditions as a result of the Commission's decision. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because you think about in the past when applications were made to terminate enterprise agreements, often undertakings were made to preserve some particularly wages and allowances and things like that where there was a significant difference financially from the underlying award and the, the enterprise agreement. That undertaking would often you know, assist the Commission in reaching its determination about a termination application or not. So it's interesting that that practice is sort of not, it's not mirrored exactly now in the new term of the Act, but it's, it's a factor that has been put in there almost following on from that practice. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think obviously there's been the, the closing of that uh, that door in terms oh, of yeah. the ability to terminate enterprise yep. agreements other than in fairly extreme circumstances. Obviously, I think the intractable bargaining is the legislative response to that to a certain degree yeah. to try to create some balance. But you know, I think there is a um, not insignificant risk that strategic players uh, in relation to these provisions 
might choose to kind of create opportunity for it by deliberately being intractable in their approach. In their so, approach, absolutely. You know, will well, we well, see more ambit in well, the way in which... Whilst um, also meeting your good faith bargaining obligations. So mm-hmm. <laughs> balancing your, your desire to be intractable and also engaging good faith bargaining could, could be a fine line there as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I've also heard some commentators talk about whether, in fact, you know, there will be you know, greater industrial action as a result of some of these changes. But my personal view is I think it will depend on the profile of, of the business. Um, the, the fact that these types of provisions are going to be tested early on uh, in, in June, I would expect, and, and to the back part of next year, uh, means that I think it would be foolish to make the same assumptions about the relationships you have with unions now continuing on into the let's call it the new world order. There are a range of different levers that they can pull and they have different, a different context in which to operate. So that may mean that the traditional rules of engagement uh, shift as well. Things like the way in which protected industrial action might be pursued and whether in fact more innocuous and less um, financially damaging forms of you know, partial work bans are pursued by employees because at the end of the day they don't need to bring an employer to their knees to get an outcome, to get this outcome. Um, yeah. they've got other tools in their in their toolbox. Yeah, no, no, I I agree. It will be an in- interesting space to watch towards the end of ne- next year. Though I think um, the message that everybody should take is now is the time to start thinking about it. Particularly if you have an agreement that is about to reach or has just reached its normal expiry date, um, and if you know that you're going to be engaged in bargaining in next year, so start to think about these things now. Such good points. Well, that's about all we have for um, the discussion on um, bargaining disputes and and protected industrial action. Lucy, thanks very much for inviting me to be part of that discussion. That was lots of fun. Thanks, Michael. And I'd encourage everyone to listen out for our third podcast, Respect at Work and the Fair Work Commission's Sexual Harassment Jurisdiction, and also encourage everyone to keep an eye out on LinkedIn for our 12 workplace tips before Christmas. Thanks, everyone.